0: Hello and welcome to Inside Infrastructure, an inside look at the decisions and decision makers behind Australian infrastructure. I'm Adrian Dwyer, Chief Executive of Infrastructure Partnerships Australia. Recently, Janice and I sat down with Deanne Stewart, Chief Executive of Aware Super, to discuss her journey from Bathurst kid to Fulbright Scholar at Yale, her career overseas and what exactly makes up a balanced super portfolio. We also talked about the Australian infrastructure investment landscape, where we rank globally in the eyes of investors, the current boom in infrastructure m and and some of the challenges facing ESG investments in Australia. It was a really interesting chat, so here it is. Dan Stewart, welcome to Inside Infrastructure. Thank you very much for joining us today from, from lockdown in Sydney. Uh, I thought maybe we could start off with you telling us who you are and what you
1: do. Fabulous, thanks, Adrian, and thanks so much for having me uh, join the podcast. Um, so, yes, so I am the CEO of Aware Super, which is one of the the largest super funds here in Australia, and I joined just over two and a half years ago.
0: Aware Super recently ish rebranded from um, First State Super and did some mergers. Maybe you could just tell us a little bit about that kind of recent history.
1: Yeah, that is correct. Um, we became Aware Super September last year, so it's still a relatively new brand, and that very much was on the back of um, a couple of mergers of First State Super, um, which is certainly the heritage um, brand, having merged with Vic Super, which is essentially our counterpart in Victoria, but also with WA Super, and it had also integrated a financial advice and retirement business, State Plus, and so there we were with four brands with very much the recognition that you know, to really make sure that we kept our members' interest in mind and costs low, Um, we didn't want to go forward with four brands, but we did want to go forward with a national brand that really provided the identity for who we are and who our members are. And so AWARE really represents the fact that we tend to serve very community-minded Australians and also it has a lovely double meaning of just making more Australians aware of their super and the power that can have for their retirement. Yeah, I might,
0: I might come back to that later because I think the mm. level of awareness of super isn't isn't that high. So that might be something we tackle. Um, but before we do that, so how does someone who was born in Bathurst, went to, born in Bathurst <laughs> or went to school in Bathurst, end up as a CEO of one of Australia's largest superannuation funds?
1: Wow, yes, it was a very convoluted journey. <laughs> um, Look, I think growing up in Bathurst was just uh, phenomenal and I was actually the daughter of two teachers and so even from a very early age, I was familiar with superannuation, the power of superannuation because I saw it through the eyes of my parents and them squirrelling away extra dollars so that they could actually set themselves up for a really good retirement um, and certainly that is the life that they are living now, although COVID has clearly put a dampener on, on that. Um But also, you know, Bathurst is a town that, um, you know, you had lots of freedom. It was a fabulous town, you know, really good schooling, really good university there as well. So, certainly that um, was a really lovely childhood, but it certainly gave me a thirst for um, really um, coming to Sydney to do my university. But then I spent, I lived and worked overseas for 11 years actually before coming back to Australia um, and so, I've always had that sort of wonderlust and view to explore the world. And I think um, that sort of wonderlust, the ability to really um, sort of explore the world, I think has actually really helped set me up for something like a CEO role where you've got many different experiences, not just one track. Um, In many ways, I think it almost uh, helps the destiny of ending up as the CEO of Aware Super because it's a fund that I've admired for years. I admired the previous CEO, Michael Dwyer, um, very values orientated, um, very strong culture, really believes in providing top returns for members, but also having a really positive impact on the community that we serve. And that really did, a lot of those values began for me um, growing up with. Two teachers as parents and in country New South Wales. Dan, you went from Bathurst to Sydney to Yale. That is that is correct. I think um, certainly when I was in Sydney and I was working for BT or Bankers Trust, uh, as it was known then, um, I had this absolute desire to go and live and, and travel overseas, as so many Australians do. Uh, And I thought, what better way doing that than studying? So I applied to a a few scholarships and got this amazing scholarship called a Fulbright Scholarship and was lucky enough to get into Yale, the MBA program there. And so I went and studied there for a couple of years. And yeah, it was two of the best years of my life, I have to say, Um, and also introduced me to just so many amazing global citizens that are now doing so many different unique things. And The thing that I loved about Yale University was that it was really renowned for its finance and finance department, but it was also renowned for its not-for-profit background as well. And so it was a really lovely um, coincidence of sort of seeing really the hard side, the commercial side, you know, the finance side, but also at the same time seeing many people there that really wanted to have a positive impact on the world. And for me, you know, that is the blend of the two things that I wanted. I, I I absolutely love the commercial side, the ability to really um, achieve and, and go after great goals, but at the same time, know that what you're doing, you're having a really positive impact on people, a positive impact on the community. So, Yale was certainly a really lovely place to balance those two desires in me.
2: Mm. And so, you studied and you worked overseas in the US. What, what brought you back to Australia? And, and how does having that global perspective change the way you go about your job today?
1: Yeah, look, uh, I mean, we are we are all global citizens and the world is so connected and is more connected as every day goes by. Certainly the time in the the States and in London as well. So I worked for a number of years in London and, and worked for many different companies right across Europe. Um, it does give you a perspective of just the global connection um, and in particular, Australia's role within the global community. I think sometimes back here in Australia, we can think the world revolves around Australia. Um, when you live and work overseas, you, <laughs> you you get quite a different perspective. But you also, you know, it, it also gives you a sense of global trends that have such a bearing to both our import and export markets. And for me, that was actually really worthwhile and an incredible experience. But yes, it's hard to ever get Australia out of your system. And when I was pregnant with our second child and we were living in this awesome but very small New York apartment, the choice was either to move to the suburbs or move back to be close to family that could really help us and support us. Um, And uh, you know, live in wonderful Sydney, so the choice was pretty easy at that point. After eleven years overseas, and uh, yeah, didn't didn't regret it, but did take a while, I have to say, to climatise and get back into the swing of things in Australia.
2: We noticed that you moved back to Australia around about the time of the GFC, and um, and and right now we're living through a pretty extraordinary period with COVID as well. And uh, We've shut our borders, you know, all that sort of stuff. H- having had that very global perspective and bringing that back to Australia, like does does it seem like a, an extraordinary time to you? Like what? Wh- how does it impact um, your perspectives that, that here in Australia we've managed to kind of close ourselves off a little bit?
1: Yeah, it certainly is an extraordinary time and it's an extraordinary time for, for everyone and I don't think, you know, I don't think any of us could have predicted um, to the degree that it's occurred Um That being said, I think it's important not to to keep that global perspective. And and I think you've certainly seen certain trends where people have bunkered down and become much more nationalistic. But as it relates to the trends of time and particularly as it relates to investing, I think some of the big global trends will continue on regardless. And if anything, through COVID, are being accelerated. So you know, with things like the internet, digital, digital infrastructure, um, both as that relates to infrastructure investing, but also as it relates to a really major trend that is only accelerating through COVID. So, in my mind, while the borders are shut, I've probably seen too much rhetoric that that's really going to change things significantly from an investment perspective. In fact, I think our thesis is more—it's accelerating mo- many of the trends that were there in the first place.
0: There was um, there was a big finding of our investor report that came out um, a week or so ago. It was actually the um, the desire to look offshore for for infrastructure investments with Australia going from being probably the predominant destination for Australian institutional money to. Europe, and particularly the US, emerging as potential avenues for investment. Is that, a, is that a thematic that you see aware, or are you are you still intending to be more domestically focused?
1: Look, I still would always see us as a really significant investor in Australia. Number one, I think you do naturally know your own market that much better, and there's a competitive advantage to that. But also, as part of the DNA of Aware Super, we very much want to make sure that with our investments, we get really good returns, but we're also having a really positive impact on the community where our members live, work, and retire, right? So that will always be core. But the reality, particularly as funds like Aware Super get larger and larger, um, and the superannuation system gets larger and larger. Um, we naturally need to go offshore in terms of um, really continuing to invest um, as the portfolios get larger. So, to give you a sense, you know, the superannuation system now at over three trillion dollars—that's 150% of GDP. You know, that's 150% of the stock, stock exchange. So, that um, naturally you are going to need to invest globally. But also, if you look at things from a global perspective rather than just Australian perspective, and our role is to get the best possible returns for our members, a lot of those investment opportunities are naturally going to be global opportunities. And I think as you get larger and build scale, your opportunity to tap in um, at a much deeper and more robust level to the global markets um, certainly increases significantly. And that's certainly where we're looking to invest, uh, build teams, um, and and we certainly see that as a significant part of our future.
2: Deanne, for the benefit of listeners, I wonder if you could elaborate on what Aware's Super's portfolio of infrastructure actually looks like. Um, What is the mix of different asset types and how is that changing over time?
1: Yeah, so if you look at our um, default fund, uh, which is a growth fund, um, we have about 75% in growth assets and about 25% in what's called defensive assets. And um, from that perspective, from an infrastructure uh, and a property perspective, we now have well over $10 billion, um, sitting in uh, infrastructure and in property, uh, as do a number of other major funds. So you've got some really significant dollars sitting there in infrastructure. And this isn't just, you know, tolls and roads and airports. This is things like um, investing in the International Convention Center, investing in hospitals, investing in renewables. Um, And so I think certainly the idea of both the role that superannuation funds can play in infrastructure has um, changed significantly over the last five to 10 years. Uh, That has been recognised, I think, particularly with state governments and their significant investment on the infrastructure side, but also um, asset recycling and the roles that superannuation funds have played, Um, but also increasingly globally, uh, investing significantly in infrastructure globally uh, as well. The other dynamic that you're seeing uh, more recently is a number of Uh, international pension funds investing more and more in Australia and in an Australian infrastructure. And so I certainly know as we're um, looking to compete for certain assets um, that are either greenfield or brownfield, uh, certainly increasingly seeing international competition for Australian assets as well. There is certainly plenty of capital out there.
0: I'd like to just unpack the superannuation system a bit because I think that, you know. yeah. I guess we all see 10% of our salary every month goes to this thing that most of us are largely unengaged with. And then on the other hand, we hear a lot from our politicians around things like there's all this money in superannuation and all this infrastructure we need. Why can't we just, you know, superannuation pay for our infrastructure? But it's not as simple as that. So I wonder if you could just maybe just describe the journey of a dollar from from someone's pay packet to um to your fund and then what, what happens
1: yeah so you're right so it is now ten percent as of the first of july of someone's pay packet comes into their superannuation fund and for many uh, that is their default fund that's been with their employer, although with some of the new rules coming through, things like that will change. And I'm happy to talk a little bit about that if that's helpful. So, all of those dollars are collected at the end of the day as a super fund to say, Rodia, we need to invest on behalf of our members. And our role is to manage that money on the with the best interest of our members at heart. And so, Really, it's with a long-term perspective because you think about the majority of our members um, are still young, still uh, accumulating money for their retirement. And so, the lens that we would typically look at and set our strategic asset allocation across is really someone that's going to be with us for decades. And so, that really in turn allows us to have a really strong long-term view, but also get a balance right between... How much can we afford to put in really liquid assets that you can sell overnight, like cash and bonds and equities? But also, you can actually put um, some money to work in unlisted assets like direct property and infrastructure. And that's certainly been one of the big changes you've seen in the last decade. And so, with that, if you think about my own super money, therefore, is getting invested really in a very diversified portfolio of equities, bonds, cash, direct assets, um, such as infrastructure, and increasingly private equity as well. And that that really goes towards the overall return that a member would get at the end of the year, according to that asset allocation. And, you know, the super funds in general have done incredibly well over this past year, where markets have risen significantly with your average default fund getting between 17 and 18%, which has been remarkable. Um, For Aware Super, we've not only done really well over the short term, but particularly in the medium and long term, which is certainly our investment horizon. So, over five years, where our members in our default fund got 9.8% return, and over 10 years, they've got 9% return. Now, that's really strong returns if you think about where cash levels have been through that period of time. But I think that does speak to the power of diversification but also critically to the power of unlisted assets as a really good part of that allocation that actually has really helped from a return profile perspective over the medium and long term. So with, um,
0: with 10% of everybody's salary flowing in mm. every month, it strikes me that probably the biggest problem you have is an allocation one, just finding stuff to put that money towards. Is that fair?
1: Not overly and I, I don't mean um, to uh, make it sound particularly easy but if you think about it every, every night as you um, see the assets and um, I mean it's very easy just overnight to put money into cash and into the equity market for example. So that in itself is not really the challenge. The challenge is probably more in your lumpier, bigger assets like infrastructure, for example, that when it comes to investing in those, at times you might be slightly underweight as you're looking to um, both bid for or go through a tender process in a certain asset that will actually fill that that gap. And so, uh, from that perspective, we look very closely at what assets typically mirror that type of return And we hold them in those very liquid assets until that infrastructure investment is um, purchased. For example, so uh, that is probably not one of the the larger challenges. There's certainly plenty of challenges, but but not that. So super funds
2: like Aware are increasingly seeking to take direct controlling stakes in assets, um, you know, rather than through private equity or other funds. Um, This is quite an interesting development. So. Much was made, for example, of Aware's bid for Opticom, which was the first time a super fund attempted to buy a public company. Could you step us through what's driving that and are we likely to see more of it?
1: Certainly for us, what's driving it is probably twofold. One is, I certainly think you're seeing uh, a handful of funds like Aware Super certainly have now the scale and an incredibly professional team. Uh, that is able to invest in those type of assets on their own rather than have always done that through external fund managers. So, Aware Super is now $150 um, in funds under management or our members' assets and so the ability to therefore have a team that really is able to invest in those, recognise those opportunities and oversee those assets is very different than where we were, say, five or ten years ago. Um, so, So, certainly that is part of it. Um, the other part of it, I think, is really comes down for us to our investment themes. So we really um, see, and you've certainly seen through COVID, this trend accelerate. That digital digital infrastructure, um, we see that as a really positive trend that we think will do well over the medium and long term. And so we were looking for where and how do we get exposure to that. And so you'll see that right across our equity portfolio, our private equity portfolio. And so from an infrastructure perspective, we were keen to get exposure to that. And so certainly that's what's really driven that that um, those moves that we've looked to make there.
0: Um, you, the other thing that's happened in, in the recent past is um, there was a, a bid put forward for Sydney Airport to delist Sydney Airport, a kind of take private, but I think also talks to the theme Janice was discussing there. Do you think we'll see more of that in the future with this Um, the the sort of superannuation becoming so big that it has to look at those bigger, chunkier things just in terms of being able to allocate the money?
1: Yeah, look, I think it's in those cases it's possibly less about being big to do that and it's possibly more recognising where there's value and how you think value will be struck. And I wouldn't want to overemphasise Overemphasize the take private. I don't necessarily. I think you are likely to see more of that over time, but I don't think that that is necessarily a driver from an investment perspective. It is more where investors might recognise that a particular asset might actually hold more value privately in these couple of specific examples versus how it's being traded amongst you know hundreds or thousands of different investors, um, and would it therefore look So, that's certainly what we've done with Macquarie, with Vocus, believing that um, Vocus being held held as a digital infrastructure asset by two owners that can overall enhance um, the long-term outlook for it, we saw as really positive versus the choppy day-to-day trading. We saw a lot more value there, but I wouldn't necessarily overplay that either because certainly I think the majority of our assets will still be in listed equities and we'd want them to be in listed equities because uh, it's really important to have that liquidity um, in the portfolio. So, there will be a natural cap in many ways to how you would go about doing that type of take private and, ha- and, and be very selective on where you would do that and with a deep belief that you would add value. Aware Super
2: is unique in its focus on affordable housing and also on build-to-rent assets and, and in those cases, you're both a developer and an investor. And interestingly, Aware notes and Spruks that this serves three purposes. It achieves good returns for members, but it also provides important services to members. And it also delivers stimulus, like economic stimulus projects. I'd love to hear more about that. Um, and, and if those objectives ever compete, are there times when you have to choose between them?
1: Look, I'd probably start at the beginning and I have to say I'd give full credit to our team on this, um, both Alec and Damien. I, where this began really was many years ago recognising the trends in the market, right? And their core was retail is likely to lose value and industrial and residential is likely to really gain value over the medium term. So, it began many years ago and very much with the view, then, as you come down to affordable housing, was that build to rent um, was a really uh, underweight, um, nascent asset class here in Australia where it was far more significant in both Europe and the US. And so that really was the beginning of the investment thesis saying there's a real opportunity here. You then marry that with demand and there is such demand for uh, affordable housing um, uh, you know i've i've read different reports of anywhere between fifty to hundred thousand homes per annum are needed in the next decade to really meet the um, affordable housing needs of australians and so and we very much saw that reflected in our uh, own member base um, whether it's Young nurses starting out, young police officers that, you know, have to commute huge distances to work, to get to work, and that need for more affordable um, places to rent near where they live and work. So, um, the team very much then looked at, you know, that build to rent sector and was their opportunity. But first and foremost was very much, we need to earn a really good return for our members because that ultimately is our primary pers- purpose for existence Then from a secondary order, if you can then have a positive impact on the community, once again, really targeting essential workers for those affordable houses, then that's a win-win, right? Um, And then you're right, there's a third win, particularly as we got more involved in the greenfield side of it, where we were developing or underwriting the development of affordable housing, that that ultimately also helps stimulate jobs. So, for us, that ended up being a real sweet spot. Really good returns for our members, really positive impact for essential workers being able to have more affordable homes near where they work, and then thirdly, creating jobs. So, for us now, fast forward a couple of years on, where including what we're developing now, our portfolio will be worth about 800 million. So, we're now the largest investor in Build to Rent here in Australia. Um, and it's done really well for our members, both from a return perspective, but also from um, a community impact perspective.
0: Can I just pay devil's advocate for a second? Mm, I, I yeah. would, um, I'd imagine that most of your members reach retirement with a, a pot of money in superannuation and a, and a house that just paid the mortgage off on. Yeah. They would be their two biggest assets. And a, as a result, they're fairly well exposed to the residential housing market. Anyway, through ownership the of their own home, is there a, is there a danger that actually having that as a as a component of superannuation means they are overexposed to to that asset class?
1: Yeah, look, I think it's a good question. I would say you've got to look at. Um the percentage of our build to rent, mm. so as I said, it will be about coming up to about eight hundred million uh, out of over one hundred and fifty billion, right? So when we're talking about a small percentage in the overall scheme of a really well diversified portfolio, um, many of our members are not fortunate enough to have their own home. Mm. Many are. We we don't know the percentage. We go off Hilda and what percentage of Australians typically, um, but that number, as you know, is coming down. It's now into the sixties. Um so I, I certainly think there is exposure there, but that is your own home in one suburb versus a really uh broad diversified portfolio. You know, we're right across um WA, Soon to Be Canberra, Sydney, Melbourne, and that is one very small component in an overall portfolio. So I wouldn't I wouldn't overdo that, but you'd write, therefore, once again, that would be a natural cap for us of not having um, a huge yeah. overweight position in it either. Yeah. Um,
0: can we just broaden out to um, wider ESG? I think that the mm. super funds were probably fairly early movers in ESG investing. Um, but in, in our recent investment um, uh, investor report um, that we released a couple of weeks ago, uh, ESG became went from sort of second or third order issue to front and centre, everybody's mind right now, ESG. Um Yeah could you talk to us about that the journey that that superannuation went through that i think now other institutions are are pushing towards
1: yeah and i think that you see pension funds and i'm deliberate in pension funds and government funds both here in australia and internationally having led the way on this for a very deliberate reason and it's because they're naturally, as they're holding the assets on behalf of members or taxpayers, they are naturally thinking long-term. And so, when you think long-term, you do naturally have to take into account the risks and the opportunities that, you know, will, will present themselves as a relate, whether it related to the environment, whether it be social issues or whether it be good governance because they ultimately, you might get away with really bad ESG practices as a company for a quarter, for a year, for a couple of years, but over the medium and long term, rarely does the organization flourish or indeed do well on the stock market if they don't get those aspects right. And so, I think that's why you've certainly seen super funds like Aware Super lead the way on things like that. And I think you've also seen more funds join in over the last couple of years as community expectations have also heightened as it relates to ESG. Um, And therefore, it's not something that's done just for long-term investors in mind, but genuinely, okay, to make sure that you are um, really taking into account the right risks, the right opportunities, uh, you need to have it fully integrated, not just something marginally done on the side or one separate portfolio. um, our entire portfolios are integrated, ESG is integrated into the way that we invest, the way that we analyse companies, the way that we determine whether we want to hold an overweight or an underweight position. So, so yeah, so, it's, um, it's certainly grown a lot in the last couple of years, hasn't
0: it? Yeah, definitely. But are there any assets within your portfolio that are not in the right place on that journey? And, and the reason I ask the question is because I'm I'm interested in this Idea about do you hold something and make it better, yeah. or do you divest it? And then, if you divest it, what what the implications are? Because those things will still get financing, what you can do.
1: You're absolutely right. So I think our first premise, and the premise of many pension funds, would be that it is much better to engage mm-hmm. and see change occur over time and see that particular company transition than it is to just simply divest yep. because divesting, you know, in many cases doesn't actually solve any issue. And so we are, are certainly the lead investor on a number of um, global resource companies, for example, mm-hmm. and realising that with carbon, uh, the need to reduce carbon dioxide, reduce um, greenhouse gases, that can't occur overnight overnight but it does clearly need to occur and they clearly have significant value that they provide to society. So, say, take a BHP, right, whether it's the copper, whether it's uh, steel, they are really critical elements that both in the short and the medium term will be desired by um, not just in Australia but globally. And so, they are good investments, but what you want to see is those externalities or the negative impacts to a transition path away from those and so engaging with the companies on what are your targets, what are your plans, are you scenario testing under what happens if it's one and a half degrees, what happens if it's two, what happens if it's three degrees, what would that mean to your portfolio, Um, how are you then um, making those targets real, are are they included in your incentives, do group executives um, feel they need to be on board and then how are you disclosing them so, they're the elements that we tend to engage with companies on. And I think um, overall, this is certainly not just Aware Super, but but certainly um, both Australian and global investors are having real success at really making sure that companies are transparent, held to account, and really on this transition pathway. When it comes to divestment, where we would be very selective in where we divest and it would really come down to Is it a really pure play in a certain asset that we think will become really stranded in the short to medium term? And so, therefore, as a pure player in that, you know, they almost can't transition, if that makes sense. And at that point, we might look from a divestment perspective and thermal coal is an example of that. We are certainly invested in companies that have thermal coal as a small part of their overall portfolio, but pure play thermal coal companies we see over the medium to long term likely to reduce in value.
2: So an interesting phenomenon I've observed through COVID and certainly in the last year or two has been this marked shift by institutional investors towards ESG priorities. Uh, And I noticed AWARE has been really active in this space. It played a key role with the investor group on climate Climate change and it recently released a report. Um, What's the connection, do you think, Um, and how will it change the behaviours of super funds going forward?
1: Some of it I think is coincidence, and some of it is because of what's going on. I think because of what's going on, I think the world has worked out just how fragile the world is, right? Through the pandemic, you've worked out just how interconnected and how fragile we are. And so, I think that, therefore, that has exacerbated and accelerated our views on things like climate change of, okay, just because something wasn't happening in my own backyard right here, right now, does not mean I'm not connected to what's going on globally and this trend. So, I think that has certainly been part of it. The pandemic. But I would also say the coincidence is that the impact that we are facing from things like climate change are just so much more in our face now. You know, whether you're here in Australia and you've seen the record bushfires and floods, whether you're in Europe, whether you're in Germany seeing the floods in China, whether you're seeing the fires go rampant in the US and in Canada of all places. Um, you cannot escape the impact of climate change. So I think the present danger has become far more um, in people's faces and the need to take action. It's not this far away 2050 thing any longer. So I think that has certainly come to the um, the. The foreground, and then the final thing I would say, I come back to. I just think, particularly in a world where thing, where media is twenty four seven, and you're seeing it all, and social media, social community expectations are really heightened, and they change. You know, they're they're ever changing, and certainly as a CEO or a group exec, you really need to be um, trying to be tuned into that as best as possible. So, on the social side, for example. The uh, what's acceptable and not acceptable from a harassment, bullying, sexual harassment, for example, um, is is possibly very different to standards of two decades ago, for example, um, and that that has much more of a bearing to the performance of a company and therefore the share price. You've spoken in public
2: fora about driving structural change. Uh, not just as CEO of AWARE, but also as a pay equity ambassador, for example. What do you think is needed here and what should we or what could we be doing within our own organisations and businesses to lead in these areas?
1: I think as a large investor, you've got to keep – at the back of your mind, what are the really big trends and what is likely to unfold? And not just what is occurring right in front of you, but what's likely to occur over the next five to 10 years. And so some of those might be asset specific, like we have a very positive view to digital infrastructure, to health, to technology, for example. But some of those themes are more uh, socially driven as to what, Um, will and won't occur. So, we do tend to look at it with an investment lens first and foremost, I would say. And so, therefore, as it relates to some of those matters that I've spoken about, whether it be gender, whether it be climate change, um, primarily looked through the lens from an investment perspective, but then clearly there is also a moral imperative. And I think Certainly in one of our um, reports that we did a couple of months ago around Build Back Better, there's such an opportunity coming out of COVID where, you know, clearly there needs and has been a lot of stimulation, money to stimulate the economy. Um, and so our view was very much, as an investor, much better to spend that money in really addressing uh, some of the huge issues facing us as a society, as well as the huge opportunities. So, things like renewables, climate change technology um, is going in the right direction of where we need to go over the next five years, 10 years, 20 years versus um, spending the money on trying to uh, keep certain industries alive that may may or may not succeed in the next five to ten years. So, that was certainly one of them, but also the role that we can play in really, as you said earlier, stimulating the economy, whether that be through investments in and um, in our private equity portfolio. So, for example, um, we're investing quite significantly in agriculture. Now, when we're investing in agriculture, we're looking at their resilience to the future and certainly taking into consideration things like climate change, things like waste and recycling are going to be really important trends over the next 5 to 10 years. So, if we just invest blindly in agriculture going, oh, that's a great sector, you've then got to say, well, then what are the other trends that are likely to impact the value of that? So, one of our investments, for example, is in a, in a vegetable company called Flavor It. It's in our private equity portfolio that needs half as much water to actually produce the vegetables. Now, that's going to be important, you know, when we're likely to see more droughts and um, and water shortages into the future, for example. So, it's looking at multiple trends and thinking about how do we actually have a real positive impact in the investments that we have, but also look at the risks that we're exposing ourselves to with some of these big trends coming through.
0: Um, can I just ask about... Some of that more cutting edge stuff, and, and even, perhaps even not cutting edge. Maybe even some of the renewables, um, <clears throat> where I'm not sure as a superannuation member. Sorry, I didn't say that very well. A superannuation <laughs> member. Um, that do, do I want that greenfield risk? Or do I, or is it better that you that you come in and buy that when these things are established and I have that more stable long term return? How do you balance that off against wanting to do stuff that's future-focused versus it being, to some extent, inherently more risky?
1: Yeah, it's a great question. And it's why you don't see super funds having 100% allocation to private equity. <laughs> so in our default fund, our allocation to private equity is about 7%, for example. And so, and a lot of that investment is obviously future-orientated But you are also expecting the return and risk profile to look right, right? So the returns in our private equity portfolio, um, I think over the last year, have been well north of 35%, right? Um, But that portfolio takes on a lot more risk as well. And so some of those assets are going to do well, and some of those assets aren't going to do well. We were one of the early investors in Canva, for example. Now, that has done incredibly well. We are an early investor in many areas like, for example, battery storage. Now, we take a view that over time that's going to become more and more and more um, part of the future as it relates to climate change, but some of those early investor investments are risky. Right. And so it's not overdoing it in your portfolio, but having enough of that that is um, future orientated that you can absolutely get that big upside, whether it be organizations like Canva or Culture AMP, um, or indeed some of the um, investments in the renewable and climate change space. The last thing I would say about uh, renewables and climate change and investing in them, and we've just ticked over a billion dollars invested in that space. Um, and incredibly proud of the work the team's done in that space. But I also know they've been really selective. There's many investment opportunities that have come their way to invest in that space and the degree of uncertainty or the lack of return you get for the risk you're taking, they've literally just said no to those investments. So um, it's not going in for it all guns blazing either. I think you do need to be really selective um, and look for where you think there's, either really consistent returns or some agreement, whether that be at government level, that those returns are um, well, you know, that the consistency is insured um, or indeed you're getting the return trade-off for the risk you're taking. Yeah. Um, I'm
0: struck by, um, in in the Australian context, that business investors, institutional investors have sort of kind of let, ahead of government to to some extent in in the absence of a policy framework at a national level around climate change, at least in the absence of one that's consistent with with sort of um, developed world norms. It it feels to me like institutional investors and business have just sort of kind of leapt ahead of it and just kind of getting on with it. Is that your sense as well?
1: Uh, I certainly think particularly in the last couple of years, you've seen a real acceleration at both business and investor level in in climate change, for sure. Um, I would also say, though, at state government level, for example, there's been really significant um, inroads, really clear uh, policies, frameworks that have come out. So, um, so, I wouldn't just say it's business and mm. investors. I, I certainly think you are seeing that at, at a government level. Um, But you're right, I think you can fire on all cylinders if you've actually got real alignment at a federal government level, clear policy, clear framework, and then backed up with um, uh, what Corporate Australia is doing and what investors are doing. But rarely is it that neat and and aligned, right? And if you think about so many of the investments we make, whether it's in digital, whether it's in yeah. yes you want certainty from a policy and an overall government framework but you tend because things are so global now you there are many other forces at work um that are really encouraging you to invest or encouraging you not to invest
0: i want to ask about sam uh sam. The, the member in the room could you tell us uh, who sam is
1: oh yes so sam sam has a long history and um Uh, was the genesis of uh, a fabulous lady who ran marketing many years ago um, and very much was there and still is very much today. Sam represents our member and Sam is deliberate, uh, can be a female or a male um, or indeed uh, um, no gender. So really, ultimately, Sam is meant to represent our member. We've got Sam in every room. Uh, Anyone that joins is told about Sam. And really what you're meant to do with Sam is when thinking about what action you should take in any given day, um, what you need to do is ask yourself the question, what would Sam want me to do? And that very much is, is the idea, whether it's someone that's being onboarded, told that story, whether it's in any conversation that we're having where we're like, okay, it's not black and white. You know, so ultimately what would SAM, what would our member really want us to do in this particular situation? So that really is the genesis of SAM. But SAM now is very much alive um, in our logo, in um, certainly in the way that we uh, come together every week. Our whole awards are around SAM um, and certainly we start every um, uh a leader session and all-in session each week, talk, talking about a Sam story. So we bring up one of the mem- what's an impact we've had on the members, and tell us Sam. Sam comes to life. Good stories and bad stories where we've we've not got things right for Sam and what we need to do to recover. So yeah, Sam is, is very much at the heart of what we do. Is there an example where
0: you've you've changed the route of a decision because? Or the part, the journey of a decision, because you've you've considered Sam's perspective.
1: Um, I mean, I can give you so many examples. It's probably the examples that come to mind aren't necessarily something that we've changed part way through, but it's more how we've gone about tackling something. So, um, give you an example. Our team has created um, this priority access team. And priority access isn't for our high net worth or affluent clients. It's actually for our really vulnerable members. Um, And what the team were noticing, once again, going back to Sam at the heart, was that when we had certain members calling in with certain predicaments, whether they have mental health issues, whether they have certain disabilities, we just weren't providing enough help and support. So when we looked at that pain point and we were looking at the impact that was having on their life we knew we weren't doing a good enough job. And so, what we did was we literally, it was one of those SAM moments where we're like, okay, let's have a look at what we're doing and what type of service we need to provide for those type of members. And so, we've now created this priority access team that really helps our most vulnerable members. And that was an example that came out of feedback that we were getting and a real focus on, okay, well, what is Sam telling us at this point and how do we actually evolve our service? So, that, that's an example of it coming to life. It's not an example of us being midway through a point, but certainly um, an example where we've taken that feedback and completely changed the way we serve. Janice? It's a
2: really lovely example about a business living its purpose um, and being quite customer-focused. Yeah, it's a really interesting, and interesting way of doing it. Um, and, and so you're saying it, so you see it in executive meetings right down to like all the way through kind of discussions within the, oh, in a
1: way. Absolutely. Yeah. So, um, yeah, as I said, we get all of our people leaders together uh, once a fortnight and we start that leadership session with uh, Sam story. It's literally Sam Says is the first segment before actually I even speak. And we get different people right across our organization to give a Sam story. And the team's done a great job of making sure that those Sam stories aren't just, yay, we're so brilliant at what we do, but where we've got it wrong, right, and where we've recovered or where we've learned to sort of change our service. Um, we just, last week's one, we had this amazing um registered nurse who was in her 60s and um, was essentially trying to work out, put in a TPD claim uh, because she uh, had been diagnosed with cancer and couldn't work, but was not necessarily getting the help and support she needed. And she was all on her own. And actually, then the team rallied around her and together with our insurance partner, provided her with extra support and assistance Um, for really dealing with the cancer, but it had really nothing to do with the actual insurance or the actual superannuation, but the support that she needed. And she literally said it was life-changing. And so the team learned through that, that actually this isn't just about processing a claim. This is about treating that person with such humanity and making sure that we're giving the right support to her at that time, because that will ultimately help her recover and help her get back to work, right? So- so, yeah, those stories, it's amazing how the power of the Sam Says stories each week really resonate with the team. But in a way, they almost set the bar and the standards versus a whole bunch of policies. Um, I think they have far more impact, quite frankly.
2: Mm.
0: Uh, they're a good example of storytelling.
1: Mm. It's mm.
0: such an important and often overlooked um, means of, of, of getting stuff done is to be able to put a story around it um, and a thought has just popped into my mind we've heard a lot over the last probably couple of months about the power of incentives and I'm thinking around um, COVID vaccinations mm. and that we've spoke we, we've heard about the um, lotteries in the US um, there's been some proposals here about paying people to get vaccinated the incentives of greater freedoms for people who have been vaccinated. Um, One of the um, the things I've been lucky enough to be able to do is salary sacrifice a little bit over time to put more into my superannuation, doing that at a younger age to be able to focus on the future. But when I talk to my team about it and say, well, you should get some advice and see if it's right for you, younger people, it kind of seems like a long way off into the future that they're going to retire. I wonder if, is there a role if if you were to look at it through sam's eyes is there a role for things like incentives that can assist in that that really powerful mm. sort of you know compound interest like the most powerful yeah. force there is is there a way of thinking about using incentives to get people to be you know putting a little bit more aside for future them rather than, than current them
1: yeah i i think um and i think when you take incentives at its most broadest definition, yes. If you're just looking at pure incentives of like if we hand out cash, <laughs> will you go and do this? Um, that's more bribery <laughs> than <incentives>. Yeah, <laughs> you know, Well, that's why I said if you look at it at its broadest, I think so, you have to keep in mind particularly um, making sure everything we do, we've got members' best interest at in mind. We, we've got to be mindful of how we use members' mm-hmm. money, if that makes sense. But certainly... Um, our belief, and certainly it's what we want to be known for, and there are many pitfalls to this because the regulations are complex and many, Mm -hmm. is the right help, guidance, nudges Mm -hmm. and advice is absolutely what Australians need. And, and, And knowing that that is going to be a very different incentive or a different way of digesting that information or that nudge when you're in your 20s than it is when you're in your 50s. So, in your 20s, it's probably maximum of a one-minute video, preferably TikTok, (laughs) (laughs) that absolutely brings to life why you should do that right here, right now, the power of compound interest, but then all you have to do is one click and it's done, right? Whereas if I'm in my 50s um, and I'm really getting serious about my goal for retirement and how much I think I need, that's gonna be a much longer exploration. And I might start digitally. So we've got a digital explorer tool, for example, where our members can play around with, okay, if I put, if I top up this amount, what will that do to my retirement nest egg? Or if I retire a little bit earlier, what will that do to my income? So we, we've seen over 100,000 of our members play with that tool just in the last year alone, for example. Um, and then we'll also do other things like nudges, which in a way is a behavioural incentive, if that makes sense. So, how you nudge someone along. So, for example, if we've noticed that they don't have a beneficiary nomination, um, you know, how to sort of nudge them along to taking that action there and then um, rather than wait for a decade and then, and then you know, have their loved ones not know what to do. So, um, So, I think that they absolutely have a place and they're going to be Different depending on the stage of life someone's at, uh, and how you best um, utilise that.
0: All of which is a nice segue back to aware as a name and making people more aware <laughs> of this pot of money that they're.
1: So you you mm-hmm. can come and do our promos. I've got to say, Adrian, you're fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, absolutely, and and you know what? we've certainly seen Australians far more engaged with their super these last couple of years. Um, And we're seeing awareness of superannuation increase. And I think that's because more and more Australians have now larger superannuation balances, right? And so, it starts to get to a certain size and you're like, oh, okay, am I doing the right thing? And the way we talk to the team is we want to be the most trusted choice for Australians because we want Australians to choose us, not just to be defaulted in. But the reality is through the course of your life, you're going to choose and re your super fund, right? So, just because mm-hmm. I'm in a super fund today doesn't mean when I turn, say, 50, it's going to be the right super fund. And I'm probably at that point going to make an active choice whether to stay or whether to go somewhere else. So, um, it's not set and forget. And I think more and more Australians are tuning in, but there's still way too many that just don't know the couple of things they could do to have such a meaningful impact to their retirement. So that's what we're really going after at the moment. We're really looking over the next couple of years to lift the way we do education, guidance and advice so that more of our members just get that right nudge to take action to actually do the right thing for their retirement. And, you know, as much as we'd love it to be their number one priority... (laughs) we're realistic enough to know that for many for many years it's going to be important but not at the top of the pile so making it really e- easy making it really relevant uh, also really critical to getting it right
0: um i'm i'm very aware of super in part because um i i grew up in the uk and the uk's only very recently had um a, a, a more sort of um default superannuation system and yep. um, when I came to Australia I just think it's something to it our superannuation system is something that Australians should be incredibly proud of and Correct. we should realize that it is alongside Canada and a couple of other places actually pretty unique in yeah. in, in structure and actually that you know if you're if you're entering the workplace now that the 10% of your super rising 10% of your salary rising to 12% over time is it should be enough for you to retire on and not not rely on the welfare state should you have a full working life i think that's um i think it's an incredible endowment that we have and i, I think people should be more aware of it and it's it's actually a, we should be proud of it as a country
1: because it's a hell of a system correct uh, any global study on our system says it's one of the best and it's actually the three things that come together that make it so unique and so strong. One is is that it's compulsory to just about all working Australians, but the preservation to 65 is also a core element. And then in return, you get a tax advantage.
2: <laughs>
1: and it's those three things in unison. It's that triangle. If you try and unravel one of those aspects, then it does fall apart. And so, you'll see other systems like the US system, for example, that have two of the three. Right, yeah. and and it's actually the three elements together that make it work so well. Um, and the last point that I'll raise, just because you you talked about someone in their twenties and why would they care? Um, the work that certainly our team has done is, and why we're trying to actually speak more and more to those in their twenties to encourage them, just even if it's five dollars, even if it's mm. for going a coffee in one week you know, every dollar you put in your 20s, if you try and make up for that because of the power of investment markets and compounding, you have to put five times as much in your 50s, right? So, just even those little bits you are putting away in your 20s are having so much more impact than, than people realize.
0: I wish I hadn't moved to Australia when I was 26. (laughs)
1: It's not too late, Adrian.
0: Um, (laughs) We we always ask our guests one closing question, um, which is what's your favourite sort of infrastructure and why?
1: Wow. Well, I mean, I'm going to be uh, um, completely biased, obviously, to the – both the trends, but what we're doing, right? So I'm just acknowledging my bias at this point. Um, But I certainly think increasingly investments in um, things like renewables and digital infrastructure over the next decade are going to be really good in terms of member returns, but also in terms of the impact that they have on the community. So they would probably be my favourites. That's
0: the corporate answer. You must like bridges or
1: tunnels. (laughs) My husband, who is a civil engineer, would absolutely want me to say bridges every time we go past one of the bridges that he helped build. Bridges are, you know, so the kids would say bridges, I would say renewables and digital infrastructure. <laughs>
0: <laughs> that's a, that's a, a nice note to finish on. Deanne, it's, um, it's been a really fun discussion. Thank you very much for joining us yes. on Inside Yes, thanks
1: very much, Adrian. Thanks, Janice. Enjoy the conversation. Really it. Thanks, Deanne. Yep, thank you.
0: Well, that's it for today. Thanks, as always, to PWC Australia for their continued sponsorship of Inside Infrastructure. Please make sure you subscribe on your favourite podcast platform and leave us a rating or comment on LinkedIn. This episode was recorded and edited by Adam Stevens from TAG, PwC Australia's internal media agency. Thanks also go to Linda Beershon, Jacob Laird, Kieran McCann, Madeline Bartlett, Brendan Pearce and Michael Player.